Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. Today, I'm so happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Isidra Menkos, and she has written a beautiful memoir, Promenade of Desire, a Barcelona memoir. And Isidra was born and raised in Barcelona, where her home country was under the oppressive rule of Franco and strict religious teachings, suppressed sexuality, childhood traumas, and secret desires. Isidra spent her 20s experimenting with the new freedoms afforded at the end of Franco's dictatorship, causing her to have a double life between a good girl and a rebel. She immersed herself in books and dancing and working at various jobs. And in 1992, she moved to the U.S., where she eventually ended up teaching at UC Berkeley. After a 10-year stint in the corporate world, managing teams of several countries, in 2016, she focused on creative writing. And she tells of her journey in her memoir, Promenade of Desire, published in 2022. Isidra Menkos, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Betsy. So, Isidra, can you tell me, when you wrote this book, what what was your purpose in writing it? I mean, I, I often ask to tell about the story, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I'm curious about your purpose in writing it, because it's a very different kind of a book. Yes. Um when I started writing, you know, when I decided to focus on creative writing, I had no idea I was going to really write a memoir. It kind of came almost by chance. I took a class about that I and I got hooked. And I realized that I had this incredible urge to understand why I had self-destructed so much in my 20s and also to understand if that self-destruction that I went through was something that happened only to me or was something that was of my generation and very related to the very unique uh, historic period that I lived through, which was transitioning from a very repressive dictatorship to a very liberal democracy and culture. Mm. So I wanted to examine this, these two aspects, my personal story and, and why I did all I did in my 20s, and then the context and see how that influenced my story. Well, your story, as with so many really good memoirs, is both completely idiosyncratic. It's certainly your story and your journey that's got its individual steps along the way, but it has so many universal things and not even, I think, to just your generation or just any specific generation or any specific culture. So there's just something in here, I think, for anyone and particularly for a lot of women. So can you tell me, give me sort of the, the gist of the story? I like to say, and perhaps this is a little facetious, but I like to say that this is my journey from repressed Catholic virgin to seductive Matahari, 
at the same time that Spain transitioned from dictatorship to democracy. Mm. But it really goes beyond that. I think it is an examination of how sometimes childhood traumas, which in my case could be sexual, as well as um, a lack of intimacy in my family life, where we were a very large family. I had nine siblings plus my parents, but there was no real intimacy in our in our home. It was a very... And what do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean is that, you know, usually you hear about large families, so how fun everybody's, you know, has friends within their siblings. That wasn't the case in my family. Mm. My parents were extremely reserved and quiet. They didn't really express affection at all. And my siblings were the same way. I didn't have any friends or confidants in my siblings. Um, I didn't have, I didn't know anything about their lives. Once we, we grew up to teenagers, I mean, as kids, we played together and so on. But as we became teenagers, we became islands. We didn't know anything about anybody else in the house. Everybody had a very private life. And um, I think because of that, I grew up with um, this incredible um, starvation almost for love, for feeling heard, for feeling seen, because I didn't feel seen or heard at home. Uh, there was no no um, real intimate connection with anybody in the house. And I think that really set me up for a lot of what happened afterwards, uh, which is that desperate search for love and intimacy, which I thought I would find through sex, but obviously I didn't. And Another thing that, that I think is happening in the book, Betsy, uh, and that goes back to your first question, really. A lot of what I speak about in the book is very intimate. There's a lot about masturbation, sexual relations, promiscuity, and a lot of things that happen in my life. Uh, and I felt that it was really very important to be very truthful about all of that because I think especially women Sometimes we feel very ashamed of these things in our past and mistakes we've made. But I think it's really important to recover our voice, to explain our story, and to not have that fear. Because in the end, we all make mistakes. We're just human beings. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does things that you regret in your life, right? It doesn't mean you were a bad person or you were cruel, it's just at that time that's, you know, you just made mistakes because you didn't know better or you have things that you were trying to solve that you still didn't know how to manage well. In any case, it felt to me that being very truthful and honest was really important and giving women the inspiration to be brave with their own stories as well. Well, you know, there's a blurb on the front of the book by an author I respect. Joyce Maynard, who says who says that the book is shameless in every best sense of the word. And it's interesting because the very first pages of the book are you as a, a five-year-old, then called Maria Isidra, who discovers kind of accidentally, as lots of these things happen, the pleasures of her own body. And if you've ever taught preschool and you've ever seen nap time, you know that every little child, male or female, discovers this, right? And there's this innocent sweetness to it. And yet it's scolded. We don't do that, says mama. Stop it. It's instantly shamed and put away. Then later there was sexual trauma in your life. So there's this mixed, there's this innocent sexuality, then there's the victim of being sexually harmed. And then later on, I think you said in our conversation earlier, 
that you looked for love in all the wrong places is the the old cliche that that in your 20s that you thought you'd find love through sex as opposed to finding sensuality and sexuality through love then at the very end of the book it sort of circles back around in a delightful way that I won't I won't spoil except to say that the pleasures of the body are no longer shameful to you and that evolution I think is one that few people write about in that way where where the discovery of sexuality I mean certainly sexuality is written about a lot but not quite in the way that you have and and I'm I'm thinking of Gina Frangello's book as well, where she she says that that one of the things that she's been criticized for is being ha, being a woman who dared to have a body, <laughs> you know, who dared to have her own desires and her own sensuality and and to make mistakes and to come back from them and all of that. So there seem they're very very different books, but it seems that that that's a, a theme that runs through your story. Can can you tell me a little bit about that? About how how did you go, do you think, from being shameful about your sexuality or shamed about it to embracing it? Yes. Um, you put it in such a beautiful way, Betsy, you know, like instead of finding um, love through sexuality, you kind of had to go the opposite way and find sensuality through love. That that was a beautiful way of putting it. Mm. I was desperate to find love, but I carried with me this incredible shame, not only because my mother had scolded me very severely for touching myself. At a point in my life, I was a child. I didn't even know that was anything sexual. It just felt good, right? Right. Um, And because she scolded me so severely, to me, that uh, thinking about it from now, it it felt like a fall from paradise. Mm. Because when I was a very young child, I did feel like I lived in paradise, especially in the summertime when we went in this town and my grandfather had this beautiful house with a beautiful garden and a forest and it felt so free and so beautiful. And then that happened with my mom and it kind of felt like all of a sudden I didn't know where I stood. Did she love me or did she hate me? So it it created like a complete break in my childhood. And then by also having uh, been later on, just uh, shortly later, molested by my, my brother, it, it added to the confusion of, you know, for the one side, it's like my mom said, that's dirty, don't, don't touch down there. And then my brother is touching down there and molesting right. me. And I'm like, what's going on? I mean, is this dirty? Should I tell? Should I not tell? So I was very, very confused from a very young age about anything related to the body and sexuality. And what happened to me is two things develop. On the one hand, I develop a kind of an obsessive compulsive disorder in in, in the sense that I was absolutely compulsively masturbating because you know that happened to traumatized children that they get hypersexualized sure. but at the same time I dissociated from my body so I was hypersexualized but I was also dissociated because of the trauma which meant I, I couldn't feel pleasure right well so then the cycle gets really wound up doesn't it where pleasure gets confused with shame gets refu- gets confused with pain exactly and so then 
how, how, you know, we look at things like that. We think, oh gosh, if, if a child was molested or suppressed, wouldn't they seek healthy love in their life? Cause wouldn't they want that? I, I think that lots of people look at it that way. Like, well, well, shouldn't you just change your pattern? But it's as if, as if the shame almost gets eroticized as if the, the shame, the pleasure gets connected to displeasure or discomfort or shame or rejection or any of those things. And so that feels, and I'm putting air quotes around this for those listening, that feels normal, right? To have, to be detached from oneself. And so there you were in your twenties kind of seeking and using sexuality as your way of connecting with, with men and your way of pursuing that too. Exactly. And discovering that that actually didn't bring me anywhere, right? I was trying to connect and any casual relationship or boyfriends, because I did have a lot of boyfriends as well. I was hoping that would be it, the love, the connection. And then what happened is I actually couldn't connect because my body dissociated from the physical act of the, you know, having the sexual relationship. Um, it, it was just very hard for me. And, and I think what happened is that I was looking for love. At the same time, Spain had gone from a very repressive culture where you couldn't even kiss in public. I mean, they could even take you to jail because that was indecent behavior. It was a very repressive uh, dictatorship, not only politically, but also culturally, religiously, sexually. And then when the dictator dies, the whole country moves into democracy. But culturally, overnight, it went into especially for the youth, and I was 17 at the time, he went into an extreme liberalism. It was like the hippie era arrived in Spain in five seconds. Mm. You know, it was like from repressed to hippie in, in overnight. Wow. So it was an extreme change. It wasn't just me. It was like everybody was like experimenting with free love, with alcohol, with drugs. There was a huge uh, epidemic of heroin use at that time in Spain. So I was experimenting, but everybody in my surroundings was experimenting. It wasn't just me. It was just like a whole cultural change, right? And I think what, what I think that happened is that I wanted to feel love and I wanted to feel pleasure. But on the one hand, in the middle of my body and my pleasure was that uh, scolding from my mom that shamed me for seeking for pleasure. And from your culture too. And from my culture and feeling that when you actually seek pleasure, you're gonna be shamed, or is it gonna they're gonna consider you less or bad? And so I think that created a lot of trauma for me. Well, and that that that's ripe to create secrecy too. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's where the double life becomes. Yeah, exactly. That made me a rebel. I even had two names. I had a name at home. Maria Isidra, and I name outside the home with my friends and in my salsa dancing circles, Isadora, which was the name of freedom and rebellion and etc. But it wasn't all as fun as it looked like because there were also a lot of disappointments. And, and I think also when you've been traumatized through being used as a child, as a sexual object, like it happened to me, you learn to be like that in the world. In a way, you learn that that's how you're supposed to be as a woman. If you want attention, you have to kind of let yourself be used. And that's how you attract attention. 
and and I think that there's a lot of like kind of um, convoluted and sick ways of growing up when you, you you go through those traumas, and it takes a long time to overcome them. And I think for me, it took leaving my country and leaving my family to finally find a way to bloom and just express myself without fear. Well, I want to come back to that, but I, I also want to touch into something that you were saying, because if you grow up thinking that to be used is the right way you should be treated, it's always amazed me how that wound, let's call it, that that brokenness seems to somehow silently put into the universe a, a beckoning call for the kind of man that will do exactly that. You know, for the or for the kind of partner or person that would do ex, that would would indeed treat you exactly that way. It's it's always funny. It's sort of like you took out a billboard saying, I'm wounded and want to be abused. Who's ready? You know, and and you know, and I'm saying it in a comedic way, and there's nothing funny about it, of course. But it's always amazed me how there's that perfect fit of the wound and the kind of person that can take advantage of such wounds that that they somehow miraculously find one another or attracted or identify each other across a crowded room. I, I have a loved one who once said, I could be in a room of a hundred healthy men and find the one unhealthy one, or I can be in a room of a hundred unhealthy men and I'll find the most unhealthy one. You know, that somehow th- this radar is part. And, and I'm wondering if that felt true for you, if, the, if that seemed to be the beacon you were putting out and the kind of person you were attracting during that period. It was a mixed experience because I did have a couple of relationships with men that were emotionally abusive, but I also had relationships with men that loved me tenderly and that were good men. But I think I was into that dichotomy where on the one hand, being a great seedog dress, you know, going around and making men, you know, just really want me, made me feel very powerful. Because mm. remember, I had grown in a home where I didn't feel seen. So I realized that being out there and being very seductive got me all that male gaze that I was starved for. So on the one hand, I was treating seduction as a tool of power, and I felt powerful with that empower, right? On the other hand, when I got into a relationship with a man who loved me tenderly and who was a good man, like in the book, for example, my relationship with Leo, with whom I have a lot of connection, you know, we're both readers, writers, we both are very, you know, cultivated people who love dancing salsa. We have a lot in common and it was a very tender love. But what happened to me is when I got into those stable, healthier relationships, I missed the power that came from seducing men. So I wasn't fully ready to enter these committed monogamous relationships because I needed that rush of here I am, I come into a room and all the men stand at attention (laughs) and everybody wants me. So the wound, in a way, was still guiding your choice. Yes, exactly, exactly. And your tolerance for intimacy. So it's so ironic because you opened by saying there wasn't intimacy in my family. I craved it. And then yet when it was present in in a relationship, you didn't know how to 
manage it. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, it was foreign in a way. Well, I, I do want to come back to sort of how, how did you reconnect to yourself? What was your journey that reconnected not only your sexuality, but your worth, your value as a person? And let's also not escape the fact that I think that this book would be a very different book written by men who came through Spain in that same era, that there may have been, you'll have to tell me if this is accurate, that that yes, there was general suppression, but my assumption is that women were judged more harshly for sexuality oh, yeah. or expressions thereof than would men have been. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's not forget that point because this is a really important one. But let me answer first the, the first question. Mm -hmm. My journey to overcoming my traumas and um, reconnecting with my full self was a long and torturous one. It wasn't an easy one. I would say that I'm still on that journey. Mm. I don't think we ever finish being completely ourselves. I think that's what we're trying to do throughout our lives, right? Um, I think it's um, Jack Cornfield, meditation teacher, teacher, who says that for him, spirituality is mostly about accepting yourself. And I think that's very true. It's that journey that we overtake our whole lives. For me, during my, my years in Spain, when I was in my 20s, I had to go through a lot of uh, failed relationships and even abusive relationships to finally realize I can't continue going like this. So I look for help. And the help I look for was, on the one hand, therapy, especially Jungian therapy, which was extremely, extremely helpful to me because it works with your subconscious and analyzing your dreams. So you cannot put your mind, I'm a very logical person, so I, I tend to always analyze everything. So you want to get your mind out of the way and let your soul explore. Exactly. Let my dreams do it. And the other thing I did is at the same time I was undergoing Jungian therapy, I was working with a Japanese center that did a practice similar to Reiki. It was called differently, Yuki. And another practice called Katsugen, which is following the spontaneous movements of your body. So what I mean, it was a work that was both body and mind and spirit. And I think that's really important. I think really making sure that when you're working on recovering your whole self, don't forget your body. Make sure that you have some experiences that are embodied. In my case, it was this Japanese center, but it also was salsa dancing. Salsa dancing allowed me to reconnect with my sensuality in a way that was guilt-free, <laughs> you know? It was just pure joy. So it, it is combining spirit, soul, mind, body, all of that is necessary. And I think that emigrating out of Spain and coming to the U.S. was also something that helped me develop fully without having that fear of being shut down by the family restrictions. Hmm. Going to your second part of your question about how women were more oppressed, absolutely. I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples, Betsy, because it's incredible. Franco, the dictator, died in 1975. Until that year, women in Spain couldn't even sign a contract, get a passport, or get a job without their husband's written permission. The law until 1973 or so, treated men and women in a very different way. For example, adultery was penalized. It was considered a crime that the law could take you to jail for that, but it was penalized very differently for men than for women. 
women who had a one-night stand could go to jail. Men would only be punished for adultery if they were living with their lover. Complete double standard. Mm -hmm. um, even, for example, a man who killed his wife because the wife had been adulterous was received a very minor punishment or no punishment because it was considered a crime of honor, defending their honor. So the double standard was really very, very deep. It was considered that men could have, you know, uh, prostitutes or whatever before marriage. Women could only have sex to have babies within marriage. That's what you were taught, right? So incredible double standard. And when I think about what happened to me as a child with my brother, I have to understand that he was living in that context where women were not valued. Women were objects, you know, they were second class and the law actually supported that. So even if he didn't know those things, that was the atmosphere he grew up in. That was the culture. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, we're watching, of course, what's going on in Iran today, where women are being killed for showing their hair or not having their headscarf on properly or whatever, because that's simply too tempting for men. So men are told that their sexuality is their own and women are responsible for managing it. It's just such an interesting thing. And, and you know, while some of the penalties weren't as blatant here in the United States, certainly discriminatory and misogynistic law was present till the early 70s and still in some ways persists today. So I, I love that you're talking about this body connection, because I think that a lot of people who who are healing from some past event or wanting to grow and develop past what they learned in their childhoods or young adulthood, I think they tend to think that they can think their way out of it, that just thinking about it and deciding differently is going to be going to make it different. And, and I've, as a therapist, I've always told people, um, if smart was the answer, I would be unemployed because I've had many, many, many very smart people who are unable to make the changes on their own. So I love that you're talking about connecting body, spirit and mind too, of course, it's not to be ignored, but that, that you, this isn't, wasn't something you just thought your way out of. Absolutely. Even now, I am always interested in practices that are embodied. Like uh, lately, for example, I have started working with someone who does breath work, uh, you know, just patterns of breathing and um, sessions with that. Um, I just think it's really, really important to to do something that allows you to go beyond your own mind because we tend to analyze everything. And, and as you said, you know, I'm, I'm a smart person. I understand objectively what happened to me. That doesn't mean that I can overcome it just because I understand it. Because I think trauma and repetitive patterns of dysfunction get a kind of like leaving your body. Mm. And unless you take those out of your body somehow, you're not going to be able to fully overcome it. So meditation, for example, is something that has really helped me out. Uh, in fact, when I started writing, it followed a period of about a year or two when I started meditating daily. 
because it was a huge decision for me. I was the main breadwinner in my family. I had to let go of a job that was incredibly demanding, but, you know, a high-powered job where I made a lot of money. It was very prestigious, but I knew that I would never be able to write if I stayed in that job. Uh, and I had to let it go, but it was incredibly scary to do so. So I could only gather my courage after about a year or two of meditating daily and just really letting things mm. come up in me in, in a way that is not mind-driven, you know. Mm. So I, I, I do encourage everybody that is going through trauma or has had trauma in their life or that feel trapped in repetitive patterns to to find not only support through therapy, for example, but find some other practice that is very, very embodied. And it might be just dancing, you know, just something that allows you to free your body in a way that you haven't done before. Or music or painting or hiking or nature. Exactly. Or any of those things that, that involve more than just kind of trying to think yourself out of the box. Well, do, do give us a bit of th this is a journey story, but it's also a happy ending story in lots of ways in that your search for love did yield a result. Can you tell us a bit about your life now and just in our last moments before we close? Yes, yes. Well, I've been married for 25 years to the same man and um, I'm a mother. I have a child and uh, I can say that even through my marriage, uh, I've had to fight to learn to uh, bring intimacy. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy, but just intimacy, just learning to be vulnerable, fully vulnerable and fully committed in the marriage. Because I think from all the wounds I have, probably that that being comfortable with not having intimacy with the people you love the most, that was the biggest one mm. because it, it sets you up for failure in a relationship. So I think that's been one of the biggest learning paths in my life through my marriage is to really learn to commit to being intimate and vulnerable every day with the person you love. And how has that influenced your role as a mother? What can I say? I mean, my son is the, is the joy of my life. But I think that for me, with my son, one thing that I had very clear from day one is that I would express my love to him often and that he would never doubt that I love him. And that's something that I lacked as a daughter. You know, my parents, I'm sure they loved me a lot, but they didn't know how to express it. Uh, and I just didn't want my son to have that that lack, that gap. And I can see in him, he's 20 years old now. He's got this foundational confidence that I think comes from that, from having those two parents that have always expressed in a very clear way how much we love him and how much we support him. And when you get that as a child, I think everything else is defrosting on the cake because you've got your foundation, that foundation that tells you you're loved and you're worth it. And no matter what you do, we're here and we love you. And, and I think that that gap and that lack is that creates the biggest issues for people, not having that, that sense of being worth it, the way to, they just start, that having that foundational love. I couldn't agree more. Well, Isidro Mencos, thank you so much for being part of the Warren Glory Project and for sharing your beautiful book, Promenade of Desire, a Barcelona memoir, which is available wherever books can be found. We always encourage you to go to your indie bookstores to purchase such things. And I hope that you will find this beautiful, sensual, 
amazing story the way that I did. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you very much for having me, Betsy. This was great. My conversation with Isidro Menkos reminded me of some things that I have long believed, but perhaps haven't articulated in these extra blooms moments. And one of them is that healing, recovery, change, transformation of our personalities, of our way of living, boy, it's just not a snap of the fingers kind of a thing. It's a process that takes time and indeed maybe it takes a lifetime that we can be in recovery, recovering in the gerund form for all of our lives. But we can reach plateaus of healthier and healthier existence where we are healthy but still growing. You know, I think of it like this. Have you ever been in a shopping mart, a grocery store, where you've got a shopping cart that has a wheel that's cocked to one direction and it wants to pull that way the whole time and you keep loading it up with cans and bottles and things that you do and the heavier it gets, the more it wants to pull that way? Well, I think of our early childhood as what determines the direction of those wheels and that we are often having to push against that and that when we kind of forget, we let go, we don't have healthy practices or consciousness around such things, we tend to drift back to the way that we once were. So that's why it's a it's an ongoing recovery process. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could do as we might in a grocery store and just turn in the cart and get a new one? But it doesn't quite work that way with our personalities and how they're built. So accepting oneself as you are and accepting that there's a process to learning, growing, changing, healing. It's a much more merciful way of looking at ourselves. And Isidro Minkos illustrates that really beautifully in her book. She lets herself be an imperfect person. She accepts that that's how she is and who she is, but she also then shucks aside the shame. And again, I mentioned this in my conversation with her, but I love the blurb on the front of the book by Joyce Maynard, that her story is shameless in the very best sense of the word. Shameless. That's our goal, to live life in a shameless way in the positive sense of that, not feeling shame for things that aren't anything to be ashamed of. That's some pretty good extra bloom. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project, and I hope that wherever you are, that you are being kind to yourself, that you are being forgiving, accepting, and that you're giving yourself time to bloom. <laughs>